Brother Eddie's asked that we mark song number 340, and we'll use that as a song of encouragement at the close of the lesson this morning. It is indeed a privilege and a great honor that we each have to assemble on an occasion like this one, this first day of the week that allows us to offer the proper and directed worship unto God. It's our trust and our prayer, of course, that all that's done and said here under the guidance of our elders and what's revealed in the Word of God will be pleasing unto Him and will in fact set our week off upon the course that would be best and that would in fact be right. As you may have noted by way of the title to the lesson today, namely the death of John the Baptist, we come to a point of perhaps appreciating one final lesson involved in a brief series that we considered last fall. It was in two of the Sundays in the month of December that we developed, in fact, gave attention to a number of features about the life of John the Baptist. Over the course of that time, we laid emphasis upon his teaching, on the prophecies of the Old Testament that pointed to his work, and we also emphasized the courage and character that surrounded his livelihood in life as a proclaimer in that first century era. But perhaps even then you noted there was one feature about John revealed in great detail in the New Testament that we did not discuss. And it's the message that we'll turn our attention to today. The Bible does give us details about John's death. What prompted it? How it came about? What happened? And I would ask that today we revisit that event and seek to draw from it some matters and lessons that can in fact be timely and encouraging to you and me today as we strive to live as God would have us to do. On this opening slide, you'll notice that as we in fact emphasized all of those features about the life of John, it is again noteworthy that the Bible tells us about his death. How did John die? Brother Jonathan read that for us just a moment ago. The passage in Matthew 14 that gives the greatest detail to it. And as we revisit that, I hope you will return again to that passage as we refer to a few of the verses found therein and try to replay in our mind those events and episodes that led to the death of John and what lessons in it might be so meaningful and fruitful for us. One of the things that it occurred to me that might be useful as we turn our attention to that is to replay a bit about the history of that ruler that in fact led to the death of John. And so I've given some things about the history of him on this slide and the one that follows. As we begin to give thought about this person, it's easy to remember that a man named Herod Actually, that was the rulership name of this individual. And he had a dramatic role to play, of course, in the death of John. But what might be said about Herod? For after all, there are a number of Herods that we encounter within the pages of the New Testament. Here is a listing of some of the features about them. And you might note as we begin that, Herod the Great is in fact the first one listed in the New Testament. This individual was born about 62 B.C. He died in 4 B.C. and he was often recognized as Herod the Great. He was the patriarch of this particular family. He was an Idumean, a rather wealthy man. And as he arose to prominence and power, he would in fact be a very despised person by many people. To say that on the one hand that he was a bit wicked would be an understatement. To say that he was mean and ferocious would also be an understatement. One did not want to make oneself an enemy of Herod the Great. For in fact, you might remember that of him, he was the one that gave the 
order to kill all the baby boys. In the city of Bethlehem, about the time that the supposed king of the Jews was to in fact appear, we can well remember that this man fiercely protected his kingship. He wanted no one to present themselves as a threat to his rulership, and he even went so far as to have baby boys put to death. But even that isn't all. You'll notice near the bottom, this man had nine wives. Nine of them. Now, not all at the same time. It would seem that at least several of them he had at the same time, but at least nine in total that we have record of. Only four of them are worthy of our brief note this morning. The others, it seems, didn't leave him any children, of which the New Testament makes any mention. But of these four, some of the following things might be worthy of our note. His first wife was a woman named Doris. Inasmuch as he married her, it seems, rather early in his life, she bore him a son named Antipater. And it might even make, make an official note to the wickedness of this man to notice that right before his death, he had Antipater put to death, his own son. Amazing, isn't it, that one could have that degree of hatred and recognition he did not want Antipater to perhaps be a better ruler than he. And so right before he died, he had his own son put to death. Notice furthermore about this same man, Herod the Great. It's entirely fair to notice two of his wives had the same name. The first one, Miriamne, the first encounter of that name. And you'll notice that of her, she bore him two sons, and Herod had both of them put to death. We are beginning to appreciate a man who would in fact go to no ends to make sure that his right and his person and his rulership met no threats and met none that would oppose him. By this point, three of his own sons he's had killed. As we proceed to look further along this list, though, from this same line, we do know that some survived. First of all, we might notice Herod Agrippa I survived. The New Testament makes mention of this particular Herod. We encounter him most especially in Acts, the 12th chapter. For it was he who put the apostle James to death, and it was he who was prepared to put Peter to death, but God, of course, delivered him from that prison by the power of the angel. You'll notice furthermore that of this same line came, came Herod Agrippa II. We encounter him in part in Acts 25 and 26 because his wife, whose name there is listed for us as Bernice, was in fact mentioned on many occasions during those chapters. Perhaps we can also notice one final thought. Drusilla, the wife of Felix, also came through this line of Herod the Great. I say all of this to remind us first and foremost that there are those who can choose to live in such a mean fashion, in such a way opposed to godliness. Herod had chosen to do that and his position to him meant everything. We should of course be very careful when we begin to run roughshod over the desires and that which is the welfare of others. That text in Matthew seven twelve still reminds us as we noted it in Bible study hour this morning. All things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them. For this is the law and the prophets. Beyond that, we begin to notice the third of the wives of Herod the Great. This one also named Miriamne. We notice she bore him one son. His name was Herod Philip. 
Here is where we come more carefully and more specifically to the text before us this morning. Herod Philip had a wife whose name was Herodias. You can see as I've detailed some of those features, we begin to notice that Herodias and Herod Philip, in fact, had one daughter. Her name was Salome, and she was the one who, in fact, danced before her uncle on the occasion of which we read this morning. But perhaps one other thing to notice about this interesting unfolding. Herod Philip's wife, as we noted earlier, named Herodias, she deserted him. She left him. She abandoned him, if you please, took up with his half-brother. And it was on that occasion that that brought John to make the comment that he did this morning. But might we, in fact, complete this by making note of one of the other wives of Herod the Great. You'll notice her name is Malthace. At the bottom of that slide, you'll notice with me that she bore him two sons, one of which was Archelaus, mentioned in Matthew 2.22, and it was he who perhaps, believe it or not, was the meanest of all of them. You might remember that it was the angel of God who gave Joseph a warning, Do not return from Egypt to the place yet, for Archelaus reigns there. This man was so wicked and so ungodly that it was not only, it was in fact after he died, that Joseph and Mary returned to Nazareth, and there they of course brought up the baby Jesus. It might be noted though that the other son, Herod Antipas, it was he who, of course, was Archelaus' brother, and it was he who, in fact, became the one that married Herodias. So at this point, what have we seen about these sons, and what have we seen particularly about Herodias? First, we learn she was married to Herod Philip, but she left him and took up with this other Herod that we've just studied. As we've noted this particular scene, I've tried to summarize some of those features at the top. Herod Antipas and Herod Philip were half-brothers, of course. They shared the same father, but different mothers. And this woman Herodias left one, took up with the other one. It was on that occasion that that brings us to Matthew 14, verses 3 and 4. John the Baptist was well aware of this marriage arrangement. He was well aware of what Herodias had done, well aware of the current state in which Herod Antipas was living. And it was on that occasion that John directly addressed Herod Antipas and made this statement. Verse number 4 of Matthew 14. It is not lawful for thee to have her. A rather brief but yet declarative statement. John thus to the king, the emperor, the ruler of that particular part of the world directly told him, Antipas, it is not lawful for you to have Herodias. For you see, she is your brother Philip's wife. Isn't it interesting that inasmuch as John had made that statement to him, that directly leads into the verses that followed, and it led, of course, to the death of John. I've tried to summarize some of those remaining features this way. After his rebuke, Antipas had John the Baptist imprisoned. He arrested him. He bound him, he put him in prison, all because he had the nerve and the audacity to challenge the king in regard to his marriage relationship. You'll notice that he had intended even to kill him. However, the people perceived John as a prophet. They lifted him high in respect and thus 
Herod Antipas was afraid on that occasion due to his fear of the people. He was afraid to put John to death. However, another occasion arose. It was Herod's birthday. It was Antipas's birthday. On that occasion, a rather amazing set of events began to unfold. Because as the record tells us, it was on that occasion that Salome, his own niece, came and danced before him. Apparently, it was a rather provocative. Apparently, it was a rather seductive. Apparently, it was a rather suggestive variety of dancing. Inasmuch as that took place, the text clearly affirms for us Herod was pleased. Pleased he was, this man, by this time. And in fact, so pleased was he that he promised by an oath to give to this daughter Salome anything that she requested. She had been previously instructed by her own mother to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a charger, a platter, as the New King James reads it. The text informs us that Antipas gave the word that that should be done. And so it was that the life of John the Baptist came to an end as his head was stricken from his body, and in fact the head was presented just as was promised to Salome, the daughter of Herodias. In light of the death of this great man, and wasn't it true that Jesus had already stated in Matthew 11 that among those born of women there hasn't arisen a greater than John the Baptist? Might we reflect a little bit carefully upon the nature of this death? The matters which led to it and the events that transpired around it. With those in mind, this next slide points us in that direction because isn't it still remarkable that the subject that John had the nerve to address and the subject that John had in fact the power and the realization and confidence to address is the very one that ultimately would cost him his life. John, as we've learned earlier in that series of lessons, was a person who was a very outspoken, a very plain living kind of man, wasn't he? We remember that he seemed to live somewhat in the distance, in the sense that it was in the region round about the Jordan River. And furthermore, he ate locusts and wild honey, and he dressed, as we remember, not in the way that most people chose to dress. With John, he was a very straight-shooting person, if we may borrow that phrase. With John, you got what you saw. He in no way pretended to fool anybody. He didn't, in fact, intend to deceive or mislead with John. He told you what he thought, and he told what the truth was. It was on this occasion that Antipas, the king, the mighty ruler of the Palestinian era, and he was living in an arrangement that was not approved by God, and John had the nerve to tell him. Verse 4 again reads that he rebuked Antipas and said, It's not lawful for thee to have her. As we reflect on that subject, it does bring us to the modern day in which we live. It continues to be a subject that's a bit controversial. It continues to be a subject that's a bit touchy. It tends to be a subject that in many ways is ignored and overlooked. For after all, doesn't that delve into the personal affairs and the personal livelihood of people? And you and I aren't in the business of meddling, of course. But yet John, as a prophet of God and as an individual who had been given the character and confidence of the revealed will of God, he directly told the king, it's not lawful for thee to have her. 
I would invite us to give some thought to those matters today. As we think about the issues that concern and relate to this subject that in many of our presentations today, many places in our brotherhood, is a subject that simply is not discussed. It is in fact removed from the repertoire of those who preach. It is removed from the discussions of those who teach Bible study classes and it is never mentioned in any other way because you see it may bring feelings of guilt or it may bring feelings of impropriety. And it is in that way that those did not dissuade John. He still said what was the truth of God on that occasion. As you look at some of the other things upon that slide, might we quickly say that if a particular subject and if a particular matter is a part of the Word of God, then it is vital that we give thought to it. We mustn't overlook it. Because you see, we shall stand before the august presence of the God of heaven on that day of judgment and give answer, and give answer for the things to be found in it. Look at just a few of these verses. In Matthew 4, verse number 4, it was the Lord on that occasion that said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. Man lives by what, Lord? by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And thus, when it says every word, that means we are not at liberty to simply discount various verses or chapters because they're unpleasing or unpleasant to us. They are nonetheless are vital, aren't they? In John 6 verse 63, on that occasion, after an exceedingly hard message of preaching, there were many who in fact addressed the Lord. They turned and walked from Him no more. You might remember a part of that same conversation Jesus to the apostles said, Will you also go away? Peter in his bold and aggressive way said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. In verse 63 of that same chapter, the Lord in that conversation said, The words that I speak unto thee, they are spirit and they are life. That reminds us of Psalm 119, verse 24, as well as verse 93, in which we're told the words of the Lord quicken us and make us alive. In fairness to all of that, isn't it interesting, perhaps one final passage, the one I've asked you to notice in John 12, 48. A little bit later in the Lord's preaching ministry, Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken the same shall judge him in the last day. And so you and I are able to see that the words that has been proclaimed by God, preserved for us by His inspiration, will be the very word before which you and I shall be judged. It is not lawful for thee to have heard, John said. You and I might notice that John, of course, made that statement in what would have been recognized as the Old Testament era. Even then, Before the perfect law of God's beautiful gospel had come into play, John still said beneath the Old Testament law, it's not lawful for you to have her. There are certain marriage uses you see then and now that are not approved in the halls of heaven, that do not meet the approval of characteristics that God has set forth as qualifications and conditions for an acceptable and scriptural marriage. Antipas did not have and did not meet those qualifications, did he? The woman with whom he was living had been the wife of another man. 
And that previous union had not been dissolved for a reason that had been given by the God of heaven. It is in light of all of those things. I would ask you to notice a following listing if I may share it. A listing begins with point number one at the bottom. If it is the case that this particular marriage, this marriage of Antipas and Herodias was not a proper one, it begs one the question, what marriages then are proper? What marriages do meet these conditions and qualifications that we find in the Word of God? It might be fair, of course, to list them. First of all, we might notice that if two individuals, a man and a woman, have never entered into a marriage union, if they are of mental capacity to appreciate the love that exists between them, they are able to enter into a marriage relationship. They're able to understand the beautiful teaching of marriage as it's found in 1 Corinthians 13, that they are to, in fact, forsake all others, devote themselves to one another, and live that lifelong and faithful union with respect to one another. That would be two individuals who can enter a powerful and beautiful marriage relationship according to the will and law of God. Some of the ways that's described, we might begin in Proverbs 18.22, where on that occasion we read, Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing. We notice furthermore, in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, that lovely occasion on which the Lord and His mother and several of the others were present at a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. The Lord graced the matter of marriage by His presence on that occasion. Nothing that He said that day tarnished the character and beauty of that union. You might notice furthermore, in Hebrews 13:4, perhaps the climactical matter when it comes to this subject. Marriage is honorable in all. And the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. That text of Hebrews 13, 4 still reminds us that there is honor in a scriptural marriage. It is a lovely thing for God and all the host of heaven to appreciate. And isn't it a blessing to this world on which we live? The beauty and honor that accords to a sanctified and lovely marriage. It is with regard to that, though, that there are are other classes of those who can enter into a scriptural relationship in marriage. Let's consider another one. Number two, there at the top of that slide. Let's suppose that an individual has previously been married. Let's furthermore suppose, as we might well know, that the previous spouse has passed away. In other words, that person is now a widow or a widower. Does God grant to that individual the scriptural right to marry again? The answer is yes. For in fact, we find a number of passages, not the least of which are these. In Romans 7, beginning in verse number 2, the inspired apostle, as he addressed the church in Rome, was very careful and deliberate in saying that that previous marriage bond has now been terminated. You are able to be married to another. That's one occasion and one passage that reminds us that that widow or widower is, in fact, by God, able to remarry. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.39 goes on to say, only in the Lord. That person is thus able to remarry, but only according to the character of the regulations and the revealed will that God has set forth. That helps us see then that here are two circumstances in which an individual can marry and do so with all of the blessing of God. But we do come to a third 
category as well. This one, of course, is one that directly addresses the matter that John did to Antipas so many centuries ago. What if an individual has been married and the spouse is not dead? Can that person in any reason and by any means and under any circumstances remarry? Thankfully, we have the position and word of the Savior Himself on this subject. In Matthew 19, verse number 9, the revelation of God leads us to note this passage. Jesus had been asked a rather leading question, a question intending to trip Him up and to cause Him to stumble in the hearing and presence of those who were listening. Jesus, however, would not be fooled by that. In fact, he first stated, have you not read? When they asked him about the matter of divorce, he simply stated, have you, haven't you read? It was in the aftermath of that, in verse number 6, he said, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder, that puts the stamp of perpetual character upon any marriage as God would have it. It is a terrible thing when any marriage comes to its termination and end. However, verse number 9, Jesus said this, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. And thus, we have the Lord making one final category listing. That person who has been married, but whose spouse has been unfaithful to him or her, sexually unfaithful, Jesus grants in that particular verse the following thought. That person has committed fornication, and that innocent party is able to appreciate the fact that he or she can, in fact, enter into another marriage union and do so lawfully and do so with the blessing of God. But we notice in that 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 person guilty of the fornication, that one who breached the former marriage contract and arrangement, that person has never been granted the right to remarry by the law and revelation of the will of heaven has he or she. And so we have these three categories, and that exhausts the entirety of the New Testament listing. These are the ones that we can appreciate are able to not only understand, but enter into this union and do so with all the blessing of heaven itself. I would invite each of us to notice just a few of the thoughts that directly come before us. First of all, we live in a world where this is not so kindly received any longer. We live in a world in which many take the approach, that's his or her business. God is only interested in whether or not they know Jesus, whether or not they've confessed His name, whether or not they are willing to acknowledge Him. God doesn't care, so some say, about one's personal marriage affairs or personal marriage relationships. We mustn't believe that. For what the Bible says touches every aspect of your life and mine. God, had He not been interested in one's marriage, these verses wouldn't have been in the Bible. But because they're there and because we will give answer to them at judgment, we must appreciate the power that's behind them and the teaching and the truth that's also found in them. This means that we must indelibly embed this in the mind of our youngsters. Long, long before they reach a marrying age, they need to understand this. 
because by the time they fall in love at age 17, it's too late to convince them of this. They need to know this when they're five, seven, ten, twelve. They need to have been taught this and understand this from an early age so that they know every person they date will be a person that could be a possible mate. And every individual with whom they're willing to share a dating experience or otherwise, that they can understand this might be my future spouse. Because you see, again, if we wait too late to try and convince them of this, we know how strong the emotions of love can be. By the time they reach that marrying age and they're already smitten and infatuated with someone, it's far too late to convince them of the truth of this. Not only those, though, who are younger, we who are older need to still appreciate the fact that inasmuch as this is a part of the will of God, we need to always lift high the banner of those scriptural marriages and ever strive to help our world understand the same. Because isn't it still true that if the marriage crumbles, then the family crumbles? And in the face of a crumbling family, the nation won't be far behind. That's what happened in ancient Rome. Families crumbled and did so in great numbers, and the empire, of course, precipitously fell in 476 A.D. In giving thought to these matters, isn't it amazing how certainly the Bible helps us appreciate the thoroughness and the beauty of these matters relating to marriage. You and I live in a world in which there are many who have chosen to live in adulterous relationships because of this teaching. You'll remember that the Lord said that that person who is put away for some cause other than fornication, if that person remarries, the succeeding union is an adulterous one, isn't it? The Lord said so. And yet many, it would seem in our world, choose to ignore that, to live in those relationships, and to do so and still think that the entirety of the blessing of God rests upon them. May they come to a realization of that decision and also the truth of what God has revealed. In the Old Testament in Ezra chapters 9 and 10, we find a scene in the Old Testament in which something like this came to be a reality. It was on that occasion that as the children of Israel had returned from captivity, they of course had been told centuries earlier to remain a pure bloodline of people. They were told to not intermarry with other peoples. They were told to, in fact, not give their sons or their daughters in marriage to those that were of the variety of heathen, pagan individuals. One might ask, when Ezra thus came back in 457 B.C. and found people who had intermarried and often even had children by way of those marriages unpleasing to God, what message did Ezra reveal to them? What did God reveal Ezra to teach them? In Ezra chapters 9 and 10, we learn the answer. Ezra fell all day long in prayer before God. And finally, when he arose, this is what he said, Separate from those adulterous wives. Separate from those marriages that are not as God would have them to be. That was the message that Ezra shared with them. And that was the message, thankfully, that they heeded. As we come near the close of our lesson this morning, the death of John the Baptist, you see, teaches us many things that are still pertinent and needed in our society today because it lifts high the courage and the bravery of a man named John 
Who had the nerve to say to Antipas, it's not lawful for thee to have her? Today, may we in wisdom lift high the banner of the book of God and also to those for whom that's appropriate to help them also see that it's not lawful for thee to have her or him as the case may be and to also thus teach what God would have us to teach when it comes to the honor that relates to marriage. As we close our lesson this morning, those thoughts remind us as we studied about the death of John the Baptist about how powerful the nature of marriage really is. It is, again, an honorable and beautiful arrangement because it's one when it's scriptural that has all the blessing of God. Today, as we teach these things to our children and lift them high in our lives, may we rest as we close this lesson upon the thought of being a faithful member of the body of Christ. Does that characterize you today? Are you a member of the body of Christ and do so with power and rightfulness in terms of all the aspects of our lives? Perhaps you and I know individuals that we work with or who are neighbors to us who have fallen victim to a marriage that is not as it ought to be. Perhaps we can influence them by our teaching on this subject and by the lives that we live in dedication to God's truth. Today, if you're not a member of the body of Christ... Realize the Lord died for you. He shed His blood outside the walls of Jerusalem for you. He did so because He loves you. He wants you to come to know Him. He wants your sins to be forgiven. But that can only happen if you believe His Word and believe Him to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as a Son of God and be baptized. All of those things could be accomplished in but a few moments this morning. And if we can assist you in doing that, why not today? If you have become a Christian, but you have lapsed from the faithfulness that should have characterized your life, you have in fact begun to say and do things in public, you've gone places and others know about this, and you need to make a public statement of your determination to not do this anymore. That's what we call repentance. And you need to repent publicly of those things so that others know of your change of heart and your change of life and that you can again be right with the God who made you. If we can pray upon your, on your behalf this morning, we'd be honored to do that. If either of these things today would be the need of your life, Brother Daddy has chosen Psalm 340, and if we could be of help to you, why not let us do that while together we stand and while we sing.